Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, if you would, grab your Bibles. And turn them to Mark chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 25 today. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back for you. That's our gift to you. We want to make sure that you have God's Word in your hands. And as you turn there, let me review from last week. We saw our gospel writer, Mark. He used a specific type of storytelling technique. He started off with a story of Jesus cursing the fig tree. And this fig tree had big, beautiful leaves on it, but it, produ- it produced no fruit. And then he moved right into the narrative of Jesus judging the temple. And then today, we're going to finish this whole thing with moving back to the fig tree. So it's, it's like a sandwich. We've got, we've got the, uh, the fig tree story on both sides, and then we have the, the temple story in the middle. And Mark does that for a very specific reason, because there is spiritual significance between the two stories. Some key points from last week. Number one, the cursing of the fig tree reveals a physical picture of a spiritual reality. Number two, the fig tree symbolizes the temple. And number three, we learn that time has run out for fruitless trees and prayerless temples. And then we also learned why Jesus took control of the temple by overturning the tables and stopping people from conducting all that commerce. And and we learned that, number one, God the Father was being robbed of worship from all the nations. And number two, the nations were then being robbed of their place in the house of prayer. So Jesus, he puts an end to all of this spiritual robbery He judges the temple as guilty, and he sentences really the temple to death. And we see that imagery in the fig tree. And then we talked about how this story was not just for the first century, uh, but it's also for all of us today at River. And I asked the question, I said, you know, how how do we as River, how, how do we not be cursed by Jesus himself? How do we stay a healthy and and life-giving and gospel-preaching and disciple-making church? And the answer, collectively, we do this together as the body of Christ, right? We stay unified. We're all on the same page. We stay laser-focused on the one thing that Jesus told us to do. In other words, we fulfill that great commission in Matthew 28. And we discussed how the health of the local church is determined by all of us, right? It's, it's determined by the health and the commitment of the members of the church. So if you're a member of River Bible Church, or maybe you would like to become a member, um, this is fun. Let me show this to you. The Word of God says this, you didn't choose River. God chose River for you. Let me show you. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18. God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. 
So the Apostle Paul talks, he uses the, the church as an analogy, the, the body as an analogy for the church. And you're here for a very specific reason. He's, he's planted in your heart to serve his church in a very unique way that only you can serve. So he's invited you to become part of a healthy, not a perfect, but a healthy group of believers. And we want to worship. We want to serve God as he leads. So let me ask you this. How do you know when you go, when you, if you're visiting churches right now and you're, you're, you just moved into the, into the area, how do you know that a church is healthy? Well, Jesus showed us last week, he looks at the church like a fig tree. Is that tree producing fruit? Is there a love among the church members and a passion for sharing the gospel right here in our backyard? Are people being fed the word of God? Are new people responding to the gospel message? Are people who have been out of fellowship, are they wanting to come back after a few visits? Is the church baptizing new believers? And then is that church taking those new believers and discipling them? Now, that's all from a high level, corporate level of church. And then we, we looked into our own lives. And I shared the story of a, a pastor friend who was ministering to someone who was getting ready to die in the hospital. And this man told the pastor, well, I'm not afraid to die, but I'm embarrassed to die. Why was he embarrassed to die? Because he evidently, he let good things get in the way of the best thing. He didn't share Jesus with, around, with those around him, and, and therefore he could not make disciples himself. And he was embarrassed because he missed out on that. And I just, I pray that we don't miss out. So let me ask a couple follow-up questions from last week. How much biblical fruit are you bearing? Do what you call fruit, does God call that busy work? Is there a relational sweetness to your life as you get older? Or is there a sourness to your life? In other words, do you walk around acting like you've been baptized in pickle juice? Y'all sour and pruney. The older that you become, are you becoming more bitter, like a piece of rotten fruit? Or are you getting better, like a glass of fine wine? Oh, we got some wine drinkers in here today. Well, that brings us to today's passage. You know, we're going to learn several vital lessons from the wrath of the Lamb. And at first glance, as we read through this, this passage, it looks like Jesus has ADD. He, he just, it looks like Jesus and Peter, they're talking over one another. They're talking about two separate things, but they're not. And, and the big picture here that I want you to take away right from the start is the importance of prayer. That's what this passage is about. Prayer is the filter for us today. And Jesus reiterates prayer time and time again from this point forward because Jesus physically, he's not going to be with the disciples much longer. Remember, this is Passion Week. And in just a few days, Jesus will be crucified. Now, when it comes to prayer for the disciples, they really didn't spend a whole lot of time in prayer. Because think about it. The Lord God Almighty was physically with them. So there was really little reason for the 12 to pray to God the Father when they've got God the Son right there physically with them. 
Jesus was physically and verbally, he provided provision and direction and protection. But see, in just a few days, all of that is going to change. The 12 disciples, they're going to become like us in a sense. Let me show you this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him. So they too would have to become totally dependent on Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. So how are they going to do that? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. I'm actually going to start in verse 12 to give us the, uh, the full context here. The next day when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. He began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the, the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And he was teaching them, Is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you... You've made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes, they heard it, and they started looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw that fig tree withered from the roots up. And then Peter remembered, and he said to him, Rabbi, look, that fig tree that you cursed it's withered. And Jesus replied, have faith in God. Truly, I, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and he does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, everything that you pray and you ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you and your wrongdoing. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, um, what an amazing text to come back to this fig tree narrative from last week. It appears that your son Jesus is, is talking over the church today. And I pray, Lord God, that you would show us exactly what he's revealing. Holy Spirit, please teach us the, uh, the deep things from your dear book. I pray, Lord God, that we learn these lessons, and not only do we learn them, that we apply them. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's take a, a look at verse 20 here. Mark chapter 11, verse 20. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. So this is Wednesday morning of Passion Week. Passion Week is filled with 
all the events from Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem uh, to his resurrection. Jesus entered Jerusalem on Monday. On Tuesday, he cursed the fig tree. He judged the temple. And that brings us to our text today, starting in verse 20. So this is, this is early Wednesday morning. And looking ahead here, Thursday, they're going to have the Passover meal. On Friday, Jesus is, is going to be crucified. And then on Sunday, the resurrection. Now, that's a high-level summary of, of Passion Week because we still have five more chapters to go. Uh, But what our gospel writer here is doing, he's describing Jesus's daily routine for this week. So in the morning, Jesus walks from Bethany to Jerusalem to teach in the temple. And after a full day of teaching, he walks back to Bethany. Now, why Bethany? Bethany is the home of Lazarus. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha. Uh, Bethany is only a two-mile walk from Jerusalem as well. So last Sunday, we learned that on that Tuesday morning, Jesus curses the tree. Tuesday evening, Jesus and the twelve, they walk past that same tree, but they can't see that it's withered because it's dark. So here we are Wednesday morning, verse 20. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. So they, all the disciples saw this. It wasn't just Peter. Withered from the roots up. So from last week, we know that the fig tree represents the temple. The temple, it was supposed to be a place for all the nations to pray to God. Unfortunately, the the temple turned into a marketplace that was plundering its own people financially. It was doing that, but it was also robbing God of worship. So it's interesting here to see that when Jesus cursed this tree, saying that it will never bear fruit again, that it died. Because Jesus didn't curse the tree to die. He cursed it not to bear fruit. So what's that tell us? Key point number one, a lack of spiritual fruit is a lack of physical life. A lack of spiritual fruit is a lack of physical life. So people can no longer go to the temple to learn about God and to worship, to worship God there. That old system has withered. It's dried up. It's died. It's, it's not only barren, but it's dead. And the new system, which Jesus is now, he's ushering in, it's not a system at all. The way to God is now found through a relationship with the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself. He is the son of God and the son of man. Verse 21, then Peter remembered and he said, Rabbi, look, that fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise to Peter. Verse 21 was predicted by Isaiah somewhere between five to 700 years before Jesus was even born. Isaiah chapter 34, verse four, it is written, All the stars in the sky will dissolve. The sky will roll up like a scroll, and its stars will all wither as leaves wither on the vine and foliage on the fig tree. So part of that prophecy has come true. The other part will be be fulfilled in the second coming of Christ. The Lord also spoke through the prophet Amos after God's discipline doesn't work for the nation of Israel. Amos chapter 4, verse 9, it is written, 
I struck you with blight and mildew. The locust devoured your many gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees, and yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. So God disciplined the nation of Israel. He told them he was going to discipline them. Uh, They did not repent, and now we've got the consequences. So make no doubt about it here. This, the fig tree is a physical manifestation of Israel's spiritual condition. The Lord said he would curse the temple, and he did. So back to verse 21. Peter remembered, and he said, Rabbi, look, that fig tree that you cursed has withered. So I want you to put yourself in the disciples' shoes here. Just the morning before, this tree had big, beautiful green leaves. And the very next morning, it's not just dead, it's withered. There's no moisture in it whatsoever. It's like, it's like God squeezed the moisture out of this tree. So the idea here in this verse is that death started at the roots, and then it spread up through the, the entire tree like a virus. We talked about how last week this is a disturbing miracle because it's, it's the only miracle where Jesus commands something unto destruction. So why is Peter so surprised here? Well, the 12, they've, they've seen Jesus perform all these glorious divine miracles, healing of the lepers, walking on the water. They, they witnessed him even raise the dead. Many times after Jesus did those kind of things, they didn't say a word. Or maybe they, they would talk amongst themselves and they were like, who is this guy? Even the wind, even the waves obey. So they were terrified. They were terrified after Jesus did something like that. But they're not terrified here. I think they're caught off guard. Because like us, they, they seem to be good with Jesus as a healer and a teacher, but they're not so good with Jesus as a righteous judge. Even the 12, they are uncomfortable with the deity and the purity of Jesus. Verse 22, so Jesus replies to Peter. He says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. What's Jesus talking about here? In in Matthew's gospel, um, Matthew records that the the disciples asked, asked him a question. They asked, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? So why does it seem that Jesus is changing the subject here? What does faith in God have to do with judging the fig tree or sentencing the temple as guilty? Well, key point number two. Jesus is not changing the subject, but rather revealing the source of his power. Jesus is not changing the subject in this verse. He's revealing the source of his power. So the disciples, they wanted to know how God's divine judgment occurred so quickly. And Jesus just says, he responds by telling them that this power came from God. So he says, have faith in God. So let's slow down here. Let's define faith. What's the biblical definition of faith? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It is written, now faith, it's the reality of what is hoped for. It's the proof of what is not seen. You can't see faith. So to understand a biblical view of faith, it means that we have to have the proper object of faith. And that's God. That's not the temple. So faith answers the question of really who you put your trust in. 
You put your trust in yourself? Is it in someone else? Or is it in God? Key point number three, faith is believing and trusting in God's ability rather than your human inabilities. Faith is believing and trusting in God's ability rather than your human inabilities. So we are commanded to have faith in God because God is the object of our faith. Hebrews 11.6, now without faith, it's, it's impossible to please God. So if, if your faith is misplaced, it's impossible to know God. It's impossible to experience God for who he truly is. Moving on to verse 23, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and he does not doubt in his heart, but he believes what he says, it's going to happen. It will be done for him. So in the same way, Jesus said something to the fig tree last week. He commanded the fig tree to do something. So in cursing the fig tree, which is really the temple, Jesus had no doubt whatsoever that 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 fig tree would die. He had complete confidence that what he said would be done for him. So the question is, why did Jesus have such confidence? Well, the answer is because Jesus, he knew the one to whom he prayed. Jesus didn't just know about God the Father. He didn't know just the facts about God the Father. Jesus didn't just read an autobiography about God the Father. No, see, Jesus had a vibrant personal relationship with God the Father. So Jesus, he also didn't curse the temple on a whim either. As the Son of Man, Jesus knew that that temple stood in the way of his mission. And because it was God's plan, it was God's will, Jesus cursed it and it died. Jesus didn't do anything apart from the Father. We could say it this way, when Jesus prayed it, it happened. Now, as we read verse 23, are we supposed to take this verse literally? Look at verse 23. Are we supposed to be able to take a mountain, pick it up, and throw it into the sea? What's your gut tell you? No. Yeah, if you believe verse if you believe that verse 23 is is to be taken literally, then dear friend, you can make a mountain out of a molehill. Y'all on the same page with me? This this is hyperbole here. Did Jesus ever throw a mountain in, into the sea? Did the prophets in the Old Testament? I mean, what's the point of that? It's just a figure of speech. The Jews, what they would do, they would call their greatest teachers removers of mountains. So when they solved a pretty significant problem, they would say that this man uprooted a mountain. It's a figure of speech. Moving a mountain in the first century was just a metaphor for doing the impossible. And we see this in the Old Testament as well. This is not new. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley is going to be lifted up. And every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it. 
for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So once again, Isaiah is talking about Jesus. None of that physically happened when Jesus was walking on the earth. So back to verse 23. He does not doubt in his heart, but he believes that what he says will happen. So believes what he says, what we could, that could be translated, believes what he prays, because that's the context here. So prayer enables us to tap into that same power that was behind Jesus. So Jesus is demonstrating how the new promise replaces the old. See, faith is it's more than just trusting God when you need him, or in isolated cases, or when life gets hard. The word of God teaches that faith is is where we are utterly dependent on God for our next breath. Jesus says, don't doubt. Don't doubt. All right, you can circle that in verse 23 because that's that's a big phrase. We've been talking a lot about prosperity theology uh, through the Gospel of Mark. Here we, we see it again. This is where the prosperity preachers get it wrong. We got to deal with this name it and claim it stuff. The prosperity preachers, please be aware of this. What they're going to do is they're going to take this verse out of context. The context is that God is the object of faith. But what they do is they take God out of that and they insert yourself. Y'all with me? They take God out of context and we insert ourselves here. One of the many issues with prosperity theology is that they teach you that you have the power in and among yourselves. And dear friend, if that's true, then why doesn't the prosperity preacher take up a mountain and throw it into the sea himself? Why doesn't the prosperity preacher go across the street and start healing people? But what they do instead, they, they tell you that you don't have enough faith to do X, Y, Z. They, they, they place the blame on you. Key point number four. There is no power apart from God. There is no power apart from God. See, God is the giver of power. He's the one who chooses to dispense it. And when he chooses to dispense his glorious power, it's for your good and it's for his glory. So stay with me here. Key point number five. When Jesus talks about doubt, he's not talking about self-doubt. He's talking about doubting God. Doubt in this verse refers not to self-doubt, but doubting God. So be very cautious here. Because when you doubt, you're doubting God's love. You're doubting his mercy. You're doubting God's grace. Really, at the end of the day, you're doubting God's very nature. So once again, this is about God. This is not about you. Look, guys, we have no power in and among ourselves. We we must access that power through prayer. Faith, that's what gives you access to God's powers through prayer, and that's Jesus' point. We are not little gods We don't have any intrinsic power of our own. Once again, that's what the prosperity guys will teach you. What the word of God says is that we are to be utterly dependent on God. Jesus is the vine. We're the the branch. Yeah. So dear friends, this is really good news. Because that faith that Jesus is talking about the faith that is required of you to access God's power through prayer is that of a mustard seed. All you need is just a little faith. 
You don't need great faith. These guys that say you need more faith and great faith, that's all a lie. How do we know? Because the word of God, all we have to do is look at the disciples. All we have to do is look at the church. How much faith did the disciples have? How far from perfect are they? Don't get me wrong. These guys are my heroes. But sometimes they fall into the knucklehead category. Y'all with me? My favorite example of faith is when the father of the demon-possessed boy is talking to the apostles right after the transfiguration. The father says this in Mark chapter 9, verse 22. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, if, oh, if, everything is possible for the one who believes. Verse 24 Immediately the father of the boy cried out. He said, Jesus, I do believe. I do. But somehow, some way, you have to help me with my unbelief. The moral of that story, dear friends, is that the father's weak, imperfect faith was enough. Key point number six. Look, guys, your faith will always be mixed with some level of doubt. Don't feel guilty about that. Your faith will always be mixed with some level of doubt. James chapter 1 verse 5, the apostle James, he he says, you got to ask in faith with no doubting. He's talking about divided loyalties there. My point here is that there is no such thing as perfect faith. But your faith can increase very slowly over time. Verse 24, therefore I tell you, everything that you pray and everything that you ask for, you got to believe that you've already received it and it's going to be yours. Well, who doesn't like that verse? Who doesn't like it? Man, that is a prosperity preacher's dream verse. This is a gold mine. Literally, for the prosperity preacher. This guy's going to pass the plate. He's going to take this thing out of context. He's going to keep taking it out of context until until he gets enough seed money. Now, let's slow down. Look at verse 24. Why doesn't this verse work personally in our lives? Jesus says, I tell you guys, everything that you pray for, everything that you ask for, believe that you've already received it, that you already have it. It's going to be yours. Man, that just sounds like an open checkbook. Jesus has just given us an unlimited credit card. Over the past couple years, I've seen many people command sickness to be gone. I've seen people demand demons to leave. I've seen people take authority, and yet I, I've, I've yet to see it work. It, it, and it doesn't work, guys, because we don't tell God what to do. Father, forgive us for telling you what to do. To understand this verse, we have to understand God's word because Scripture interprets Scripture. So, what else does God say in his word about faith 
and belief and prayer. See, if you hang your hat on this verse, when your prayer is not answered, you're going to be really disappointed. And time and time again, disappointment after disappointment after disappointment ultimately will lead you down a path to where you're really angry at God. So let's, let's look at this. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, therefore I tell you. Your translation may say, truly I tell you. Who's the you? Who's the you there? Back in verse, look up, look up to verse 22. Jesus replies to who? He replies to them. Jesus is, is talking to all 12 disciples here. So to interpret scripture correctly, we got to keep it in the original context. So please know this is not a singular command to one person. Jesus is addressing the 12 disciples, which ultimately is the church. So verse 24 could be translated, therefore I tell you all. Or if you're from Texas, I'm telling you all y'all, right? Verse 23 and 24, the context here is the power of the church family. This is group prayer. This is community. This is coming together in unity, seeking the Lord's face together. Jesus is not referring to a personal laundry list of wishes so that he can make your life easier. That's not what this verse is for. Verse 24, he says, I tell you, I tell you all everything that you pray and you ask for. So let's look at the correct context here. In other words, when you come together as a church and you pray according to God's will and you don't doubt God's sovereignty in your heart, watch out because there are no limits to the church's prayers. Why? Because what, you, what we've done is our prayers are in harmony with the purposes of God. And what's the purpose of God? John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and his only son, that whoever believes in him, you're not going to die. You will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, to condemn the world. Jesus did not come to point his finger at you and show you everything that you're doing wrong. He came to save you. So that's God's purpose. Now what's the church's purpose? Matthew 28, verse 19. Go, or literally as you go, as you go to work, as you walk your dog, as you go to the grocery store, make disciples. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't stop there. You got to teach them. Teach them to, to observe everything that I've commanded you. In other words, everything that I've taught you, pour your life into someone else. And remember, you got to remember this, I'm with you always. Because if you try to do this without me, this is a disaster. So Jesus is saying, in this verse, in verse 24, when you combine God's purpose with God's, with the church's purpose, really those, those things should be one and the same. Most of the time they're not. But when you combine God's purpose with the church's purpose, you better watch out because those prayers are as good as answered. Verse 25, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven 
will also forgive you your wrongdoing. So it was common for people to pray with their, kind of like with their, their, their heads down like this and, and their, their hands like this. Very common. That's what Jesus is referring to here. Verse 25, really, it's all about forgiveness. Forgiveness is the second condition concerning answered prayer. The, the first condition was faith in God. The second is forgiveness. You know, there's a lot to say about forgiveness. Volumes of books have been written on forgiveness. Please note here that Jesus is not, re, he's not referring to salvation. He's not referring to salvific forgiveness, eternal forgiveness. Salvation was given to us when Jesus shed his blood on that cross. Jesus is referring to relational forgiveness here in verse 25. He's talking about the unforgiveness of certain people in your own life. So keep in mind, this is a significant lesson from the wrath of the Lamb today. So this is very, very important. And it's important because the cross of Christ his substitutionary atonement, his propitiation, the the satisfaction of God's wrath because of your sin, it all hinges on forgiveness. So when we find it hard to forgive someone, dear friend, I'm going to point you right back to the cross. There is not a day in your life where you cannot ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness is so important to God, it's embedded in the Lord's prayer. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So this is nothing new. God's very nature is forgiveness. And we see this throughout the Old Testament as well. I'm reminded of Moses shortly after he got mad at the Israelites. He's coming down the mount and he breaks the Ten Commandments. And God says, all right, do over. We got to do this over. Exodus 34, verse 6, it is written, The Lord, the Lord, is a compassionate and gracious God. He is slow to anger, and He is abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. And here we go. Forgiving iniquity, forgiving rebellion, and forgiving sin. So, dear friend, when someone sins against you and he comes and he apologizes, he confesses his sin, he asks for forgiveness, this person did exactly what the Holy Spirit told him to do through the Word of God. So we must forgive that person. If you hold a grudge after someone has confessed their sin to you, tried to make things right, if you you choose now unforgiveness and if you choose resentment, and you choose bitterness after this confession, then you can expect God to hold a grudge against you. How do we know this? Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. Jesus says, if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Key point number seven. Forgiveness is the most costly gift to give and the most overwhelming gift to receive. Forgiveness is the most costly gift to give and it's the most overwhelming gift to receive. 
forgiveness, it's not the same thing as reconciliation. Reconciliation is the restoration of that relationship. Many times forgiveness and reconciliation, they make a a relationship stronger, and we praise God for that, especially when it comes to family dynamics, marriages. Many times, however, there must be a severing in this relationship, especially when it comes to sexual abuse, spiritual abuse, physical abuse. So please don't overthink forgiveness. Many times forgiveness is a process to where you find yourself forgiving that person over and over and over again, and that's okay. The process is good. You're not doing anything wrong there. There's there's no reason to feel guilty. Forgiveness many times is not a one-and-done thing. Now, what, what, what happens if someone sins against you but doesn't come and ask for forgiveness? What are you supposed to do there? Offering forgiveness to someone who doesn't think they need forgiveness is really more for you than it is for them. God's going to take care of them. But the Word of God says this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. So key point number eight, forgiveness releases them of the sin and it frees you of the pain. Forgiveness releases them of the sin and it frees you of the pain. So you get to choose every day if you want to carry that kind of spiritual baggage around with you, this thing called unforgiveness. Spiritual baggage, it has physical consequences, headaches and ulcers and bitterness towards others. Unforgiveness, it also causes you not to trust God, and you're you're going to be gun-shy around people too. It's been said that forgiveness is like swallowing poison and then expecting that guy to die. Doesn't work that way. Lastly, please don't believe the lie that time heals all wounds. Time heals nothing. Time does not reduce the hurt. All it does is sharpen the pain. Because when that person's name comes up or a song reminds you or or something happens, you're just... You're remembered of that event. It sharpens the pain. So all of that to say this, if you want your prayers answered, lessons from the wrath of the Lamb from last week are this. Stay connected to your church family. Pray in a group. Pray with your church family in faith. Get your prayers aligned to to the will of God. And then secondly, forgive those who have hurt you personally. Father in heaven, thank you for allowing us the privilege to go through this text slowly. I pray, Father, that we uh, allow this text to to marinate with us this week as we, we look over our lives and we look at our own faith We look at our relationships. And I pray, Lord God, that when people around us, when when they see how 
forgiving we are as a church. They, the, the world will say, how can you do that? And, and we can respond because Jesus forgave me. Thank you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.